This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Satoko Naito. I'm a docent at the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. And I am delighted to welcome Dr. Katarzyna Cetka, who has graciously agreed to discuss her recent and ongoing research on food and food packaging in Japan. Uh, Dr. Cetka is the Chair of Modern Japan Studies at Leiden University in the Netherlands and is an expert on food history and cuisine in Japan and Korea. She's published extensively on food and its many associated uh, cultural, social, and of course, political issues. Currently, she is co-editor of the Consumption and Sustainability in Asia book series from Amsterdam University Press. And she is also editor-in-chief of the journal Worldwide Waste, which looks at sustainability and waste studies in Asia and beyond. So your research really is very wide ranging. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of your podcast. Uh, I'd love to begin with your most recent book publication, Branding Japanese Food from Meibuts to Washoku from the University of Hawaii Press, co-authored with Yasuhara Miho. Uh, your central thesis concerns the phrase washoku that received a 2013 designation as a UNESCO intangible world heritage. You detail how exactly various agencies manipulated and constructed the image and the definition of this so-called washoku solely for the purpose of the UNESCO nomination. It's a really fascinating read the whole book. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your research into this project? Well, uh, let me say that what we basically did uh, with this book is kind of pretty straightforward. So we juxtaposed the content of the Washoku nomination submitted to the UNESCO by the Japanese government. We juxtaposed this content with the promotional educational activities centered on Washoku that were undertaken by the Japanese government and a variety of organizations and businesses after the UNESCO inscription in 2013. So already by kind of juxtaposing these two messages, we found lots of inconsistencies. And then further, these two data that we gathered, we further compared them, contrasted them with historical data and other material about the use and definition of washoku that we collected from cookbooks, etiquette manuals, menus, newspaper articles, and so forth. And to be honest, we were actually quite surprised by our own own findings that the degree of manipulation that was involved in the whole washoku UNESCO inscription scheme, we were really flabbergasted by it. So I won't take much more time to explain the book, but well, please have a look at yourself. We also have an, the paperback is coming out in January, but we also have a Kindle edition, which is very accessible. So I would encourage you, uh, your listeners, to, to just have a look for themselves. What I wanted to add is that this 2020 book that came, the English version, is actually a kind of revised version of the earlier, earlier book that we published in 2016 in Japanese, in Japan. 
And it took us two years to finalize the, the manuscript. It, was, it is not simply a, a translation of the Japanese version, but rather a completely different book, because as you can imagine, the non-Japanese audience requires much more information on the background issues than the Japanese audience would. But there is something else that happened when we were working on the English version. We actually discovered that the manipulation of historical facts and, and re actually manipulation of reality in the case of Washok was actually a continuation of similar practices that were employed for centuries in Japan for branding of foods as iconic markets, markers of tourist attractions. And I'm thinking here about meibutsu and omiyage that most Japan studies per people uh, know what, what these are. But if you'd like me to elaborate on these two terms, happy to do that. Yes, yes, please do. So basically the omiyage, or, or maybe let me start with meibutsu. Meibutsu in uh, the now kind of classic book about domestic tourism in Japan by Nelson Graburn from 1993. He describes uh, meibutsu as a noted or special product, as a feature of a place, site or building. So meibutsu could, could be a, a natural product, a fish, a cultural product. For example, it could be a pottery or silk or even a building, although a building would or, or a place would be uh, maybe more often the, the word meisho would be used, but meibutsu is basically a, a special or noted or special product or that kind of represents a place. Mm -hmm. And omiyage is, there is again a kind of, I, I could talk a li little bit more or longer about that, but basically omiyage is usually translated as a, as a souvenir from a trip. And basically when we could analyze that, that's the meibutsu that has been brought home i see yeah that's the easiest kind of definition okay. but what is interesting that so we looked at meibutsu and omiyage only in con that that are edible yeah. because washoku is it is washoku is a kind of food thing yeah. so when we found the parallels we found the parallels in in edible meibutsu and omiyage and as uh, many of the listeners of this podcast know, of course, the beautifully wrapped omiyage are, are now so ubiquitous in, in all over Japan that people probably do, do not uh, wonder even when this with practice actually began. But when we look into, into sources, we see that edible omiyage, although they did exist in pre-modern times, uh, this is basically the, now they occupy a central place in the omiyage business, uh, all kinds of cookies and, and other, mm. you know, savory biscuits and all kinds of stuff that you, we can buy all over Japan. Mm. Uh, this actually is very closely connected to the changing pace of travel. So the introduction of the train as you might know, the pre-modern travelers, there was a, a, quite a sizable a tourist industry in Japan, in pre-modern Japan, but the tourists primarily traveled on foot. So you can imagine that perishable food items would not travel well home 
before the advent of, of train travel. But actually, the, the, the practice of omiyage as we know it today is actually goes back to the post-war period, 1960s, when the domestic tourism was experiencing its, its tremendous growth. And, and although we, we might be talking about mass tourism to a certain extent during the pre-modern era, this took entirely new proportions during the 1960s. So the omiyage tourism industrial complex, as we know it today, is rather new. But as you've said, it has roots in pre-modern times with travelers visiting various meisho and eating various meibutsu. And nowadays, at least, there's the idea that if you haven't had the meibutsu from the location, then you haven't actually had the full experience of travel. This notion of your travel is not complete unless you have not partaken the, the food of the area has actually emerged in the late 18th and 19th century. And it has actually persist the legacy of this uh, practices exists to this very, the very day. But it is something that has been constructed very perfectly, I must say, by primarily the publishing industry of the early modern area. So the publishers of there, there's great literature on, on this topic. So the publishers of uh, travelogues, diaries, board games, and of course, the publishers of woodblock prints, they were very much interested in promoting their, in giving their products and a kind of sense of, or rather giving their readers, of consumers of their products, a feeling that they were themselves tra- arm- armchair travelers. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they included the details such as Meibutsu, was very essential for the popularity of their uh, product. So to a certain extent, it was not as much because omiyage, edible omiyage at the time was very limited. Uh, it was not that, 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 that much the, the commercialization of the omiyage business at the time, but rather the publishing industry, travel literature that was responsible for this proliferation of the idea that you had to try the local specialty. Otherwise, you are not really traveling. This reminds me of the tradition of pilgrimage, where you visit a temple or a shrine, offer prayers, then maybe also get an omamori for yourself, and to bring it back with you or to bring it to family and friends at home. So there's this kind of needing to prove that you've actually physically been there. And also by taking a piece of something from there, you transfer the benefits of visiting a sacred site onto a physical object that you can then bring back with you. And this this was a kind of omiyage as well, I believe. Uh, so you discuss omiyage and its packaging here, and your new project focuses on food packaging, including edible omiyage. Yeah, so as I mentioned, the, the omiyage first, the proliferation of edible omiyage becomes increasingly strong during, along with the proliferation of train travel. Mm-hmm. So the first omiyage that scholars were able to, or actually the first, so so what happens? I have to I have to explain it a little bit more. So you can imagine when people would travel on foot along the Tokaido Road, 
traveling of, on foot, we cannot even imagine how you can travel for weeks on foot, right? But the point is that you're traveling on foot and every two, three hours, this was the commercial development, of course, surrounding the, the travel was that every two, three hours, maybe four hours, there would be a tea house that, where you could rest for a while, take some, some refreshments. And these tea houses would come up with their special, usually rice cakes that they would offer to travelers. And in order to differentiate themselves from the tea house that would the travelers, they would encounter three hours further on the road, they would invent a story usually that connected those specialty of this particular place with a folklore or, you know, a historical event or historical personage. So uh, this is how the Meibutsu were actually kind of emerging. There are actually different types of Meibutsu, but let's keep it simple. So imagine at a certain point the train replaces, the train travel replaces the travel, the, the trip. Mm-hmm. So all those tea houses, or a majority of them, go out of business. So what they cleverly do is they relocate to railway stations where they put their meibutsu that people would in the past, you know, try with their tea. They put them in the boxes and they sell them as omiyage. And this is actually the kind of very logical explanation behind the growth of of Meibutsu since the early 20th century when the railway network is expanding uh, more Mm -hmm. and more, right? So then what brings us to packaging is, okay, so they put it in boxes that are made from wood, oribako, Mm. and they get this idea of doing that by following the example of Ekiben, so the lunchbox, Ekiben, the train station lunchbox, as we know it, right? So again, Ekiben didn't exist before the train. So the train station lunchbox didn't exist before the train. So again, we go to the 1870s, right? When the first train lines are established and then 1880s, when gradually more and more stations come up with an idea of selling a lunchbox. And this is the kind of inspiration that the omiyage sellers get when packaging their omiyage. And what is interesting in this case is actually, of course, I I knew about Ekiben for a long time. There is the 1980s article about Ekiben uh, history, which I knew, of course, for decades. But this connection with packaging and those boxes has provided me with a a completely new research topic that I never thought that I would embark upon. And that's so fascinating about being a scholar, right? You work on a book and then you kind of find a topic. Yeah, this this needs to be investigated a little bit more. So this the working on the English version of, of the Washoku book actually has kind of directed me towards the, the packaging theme. And I'm currently working on the manuscript of the book that I, I we, we do have a title already how to wrap wrap five eggs transformation of uh, food packaging in japan and yeah the book is uh, coming out i think it will be 2020 2022
Yeah, that is that is such a great title. When we spoke earlier, you mentioned that it's a reference to an earlier work or series of works, How to Wrap Five Eggs. There are actually many editions of this book, but it's basically the same content. Was the author of those books is, is graphic designer Oka Hideyuki. And he single-handedly put the spotlight on this rather obscure category of Japanese crafts, the packaging. And uh, the English translation of the first book was published in 1967. And then uh, the second one was in 75. And the 75, How to Wrap Five More Eggs, was accompanying the display of the collection of kind of crafts, packaging crafts that Oka has brought to the United States and toured across the United States and Canada. Oka argued that this traditional packaging was representative of how food was basically packed in Japan. And he argued that this is something that is, is quite traditional. However, I would like to argue that packaging of food as such mm. has not been so widespread before the modern times. And of course, we all know that uh, it underwent tremendous transformation during the 20th century, right? When we look at how food is being packaged today with mm. many layers and plastic, paper, all kinds of embellishments. embellishments. This is a modern development. And there is uh, lots of people who argue, especially the people from the packaging design business, argue that there is a continuation between how food was packed or between the pre-modern practices and modern practices that only now they have become more, there are different materials being used and the, the industry has, of course, has grown. But my argument is that there is no continuity between pre-modern packaging practices, which were very limited, and the modern practices, but rather that the modern or contemporary packaging industry is actually kind of taking inspiration merely from the pre-modern art objects rather than from practices that were characteristic pre-modern era. That gives us a Nice segue for me to mention your beautiful catalog called Too Pretty to Throw Away from an exhibition you organize with Dr. Eva Mahotka of Stockholm University. You discuss the historical nature of packaging and how you know, there's a lot of constructed continuity and a kind of forced nostalgia for a past that maybe never existed. Uh, can you tell us how you and Dr. Mahotka came to this project? Yes, this is actually one of the project that nearly ended up as a disaster because we had this wonderful idea, right, that my colleague, Dr. Mahotka, was, was at the time at the University of Leiden and we have, we are both, you know, born in Poland and educated in Poland. So we became friends quite quickly and we thought, well, why, why don't we do a project together? That would be fun. And she's an art historian. I am a specialist on, you could say, largely cons history of consumption in a, in a broad sense. So we decided, oh, why don't we look at this packaging, contemporary packaging practices and how they, and their historical roots. So we were quite, uh, it's a kind of 
very catchy topic. So we, one museum, our Seamold House Museum in Leiden already expressed interest. We got the funding and then we started putting, putting the exhibition together. And after two, three months of work, we discovered that there is no connection between the, as, you, as you as you rightly pointed out that there is there, there is this old retrospective nostalgia kind of uh, connection but there is actually discontinuity rather than continuity and then we it was too late to you know cancel everything we already had the opening day for the exhibition and then we decided why why don't we just take this opportunity of this discovery to focus on exactly what what we discovered the that there is no continuity between the past and the present. The packaging becomes increasingly important, mm-hmm. more important than the, than the content. And we see this, of course, there is, a, and, and this is something that the, my, my colleague, Dr. Mahotka actually argued that the, the wrapping of art objects from the early modern period which was quite extensive. Some listeners might be aware that the art objects in Japan are usually packed in several layers of, uh, there is a furoshiki and then there is a box and there is another box. So very precious uh, art objects are usually packed like that. And that's what we actually see in the contemporary practices, packaging practices in Japan. And the, the most extreme examples are, of course, the gifts, presents, or an omiyage is, is part of that. But it's becoming increasingly common in, in normal commodities. But we see that the, it is the packaging that it becomes important, becomes actually the primary focus of attention. And what is inside is actually irrelevant or the kind of secondary nature and this is what we see increasingly for example when we uh, we see the aesthetic aspects of ekiben so the the kind of aesthetic connection with the place is more important very often than what is actually being eaten so in the early 20th century it was the ekiben wrappers so the you know the piece of paper where when there was usually the connection with the place. So it was, would be like Mount Fuji when, when the station was near the Mount Fuji or more modern types of ekiben. So for example, in the skiing areas, there would be a, a kind of figure of a skier uh, put on it. So it starts very simply with the ekiben wrappers. And there is in Japan, fortunately, tons of collectors of ekiben wrappers. So we have fortunately a magnificent collection of ekiben wrappers since the 1920s actually. And those collectors also publish their books, their collections uh, in, in all kinds of publications. So this is a tremendous, tremendously useful source. So we see this, so there is the omiyage and ekiben that have this exclusivity in them through the aesthetic connection with the place. And we see that this tendency that starts in the early 20th century is kind of expanding to everyday commodities. So we have like confectionery that is only available for a certain period of time, seasonal uh, confectionery in a very particular packaging. 
So there is a that at that point there is not not no connection with the place. Although we could argue, like for example, the Kit Kat yeah. uh, would be one packaging. It would be one example of this practice going out of hand, actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we see increasingly that this branding strategies that were that were initially invented for the purpose of Omiyagen or Akiben are expanding to other commercial products. I, I would say foods because that's what I'm kind of focusing on. Well, food is a big category, so it's, I think, enough to focus on. And when you say Kit Kats, it makes me smile because often when I visit Japan, I I'm asked to, and I bring back uh, Kit Kats. Of course, the chocolates themselves are not exclusive to Japan, but well, the flavors often are, and they can be exclusive to location, like certain cities or prefectures, or Kisetsuken um, Day when it's only seasonal. And also at the airport, I I think that they might have had some Kit Kats exclusive to to airports. Well, this brings me to actually to, it brings us a kind of to a full circle back to Meibutsu and Omiyage that I discussed in, in the Washoko book, which is that it is the stories in the case of packaging, it's the stories that we see on the packaging. But in the case of Meibutsu, it was the stories that were told by the publishers of the travelogues and were depicted on woodblock prints. It's the stories that made the special, but these stories were hardly ever based on any reality. So while they are essential for the popularity of Meibutsu they are manufactured as in the same way as Washoku is, is today. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating and I'm really looking forward to your ongoing research. Of course, your forthcoming book. Thank you, especially because this is a work in progress. So you're talking about research that you're right in the middle of conducting. So I'm really grateful for your willingness and generosity to share your expertise with us. Well, thank you for your time and for sharing my research with your listeners. <laughs> Again, thank you to Dr. Katarzyna Czeczka and to our listeners. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration and studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.